was saying, we're in a series on Daniel at the moment. We've been having a lot of stuff, because we're in Daniel, on dreams. Dreams have been coming up repeatedly over the last few weeks. Last week, Tasha was interviewing me. Those of you who are here, Tasha, Tasha interviewed me about um, the most wacky or strange dream I could remember having, and then we all spoke briefly to each other in small groups about, um, about whether we think that God ever has spoken to us in a dream, perhaps, which is a really interesting question, isn't it? It's a very interesting question, that. Somebody told me the other day about a dream they'd had, and it was unusual because I, I featured in it. It's always a bit scary. It's always a bit unnerving when somebody starts to tell you about a dream in which you featured. Actually, I did that earlier on with somebody who's here. But anyway, this person who had a dream in which I was in, he was a musician friend, he's called Sam, and he said to me, he emailed me about the dream. He said, I had a dream this evening that I gave you a strange instrument. It was like a classical acoustic guitar, except that the strings hummed by themselves. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Kind of like playing them harmonically, except by themselves and at a lower pitch. So if you can imagine what that might sound like. So hopefully that's a good sign, he said. Anyway, let's pray at this point before we continue. Lord, we thank you for, for the dreams that appear in the Bible, in your word, where you speak to people powerfully, if mysteriously, through dreams. And we pray that some of these dreams that we hear about today through Daniel would kind of crystallize, would become clearer for us, and that we would learn about you and what you want us to hear today. Amen. So they've come up more or less every week, dreams, in this currency series on Daniel, as I was saying. Um, I've probably had more concentrated stuff speaking personally on dreams in the space of four or five weeks than I've had in all the decades in which I've been a Christian. And there's been so many dreams. Um, and the part that we're in today, which is chapter 7, is, a, is another dream, but this time it's a bit different because, well, most of the dreams we've had so far have been Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, with Daniel interpreting them. But here, it's slightly different because here we have Daniel dreaming himself and then telling us about his dream in the first person. And as I say, we're in chapter 7. Um, there's also a kind of massive gear change that happens in chapter 7 in the style and tone of the writing. We're moving into the less well-known or maybe the less clear side of the book because in this second part of the book in, of Daniel from chapter 7 onwards, you get this sequence of complicated prophetic visions. It's not the easiest of chapters, chapter 7, to tackle, but it's worth sticking with, so we're going to stick with it because the meaning of the visions that Daniel has in the dream take in all of human history. There's an amazingly sort of amazing sweep that's going on in this from Daniel's time right up until today and beyond. In fact, to infinity and beyond, you could actually say. And it unfolds in four sections, this chapter. Each section describes different periods in history from Daniel's period to the future and to the end of times. And excitingly, it includes something about the times that we're living in as well. So it's, it's really relevant to us. Daniel's circumstances, personal circumstances, have changed as well in this chapter because King Nebuchadnezzar has died and has been succeeded by a new king, Belshazzar. 
And these two kings are as different as Cain and Abel or Jacob and Esau. So it was hard enough for poor old Daniel to cope with King Nebuchadnezzar because he was quite unstable and be slightly unpredictable. But basically, he seemed to be a sort of sympathetic, slightly sympathetic character. He had Daniel's back in some ways. Compared with Belshazzar, who now is the new king, he was certainly more sympathetic, whereas the new king is ruthless and desperate. And to add to that, we're in the kind of final days of the Babylonian Empire. Things are crumbling. We're in the end times of their empire, as they were soon to be defeated by the Persians, the great Persian Empire. So, we have his dream. We're going to look at Daniel's dream. If you remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a strange dream about a, a colossal, imposing but unstable statue, this massive statue made of different metals. And Daniel was able to interpret it as a prophecy for the successive human kingdoms that were going to come and go in the future when God's kingdom, in contrast, would be eternal and solid and unchanging. The dream that Daniel has in the chapter, I promise we are going to look at it in a moment, the dream, the dream that Daniel has in chapter 7 is also about kingdoms, but in comparison it's more like a kind of nightmare sequel to the dream that we had a few weeks ago. So let's dive into it, into the first section, the first section which is a description of the dream. So here we go, this is uh, Daniel's dream. And he says, I'll just plow on and it will appear in the screen, on the screen in a moment. In the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. What he saw as he slept in his bed terrified him, a real nightmare, and then he wrote out his dream. In my dream, he said, that night I saw the four winds of heaven whipping up a great storm on the sea. Four huge animals, each different from the others, ascended out of the sea. The first animal looked like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. And while I watched, its wings were pulled off. It was then pulled erect so that it was standing on two feet like a man. And then a human heart was placed in it. And then I saw a second animal that looked like a bear. It lurched from side to side, holding three ribs in its jaws. It was told, attack, devour, fill your belly. Next, I saw another animal. This one looked like a panther. It had four bird-like wings on its back. This animal had four heads and was made to rule. After that, a fourth animal appeared in my dream. This one was a grisly horror, hideous. It had huge iron teeth. It crunched and swallowed its victims. Anything left over, it trampled to the ground. It was different from the other animals. This one was a real monster. It had ten horns. And as I was standing at the horns and staring at them and trying to figure out what they meant, Another horn sprouted up, a little horn. Three of the original horns were pulled out to make room for it. There were human eyes in this little horn and a big mouth speaking arrogantly. That's weird stuff, isn't it? So the dream we have today is, is prophetic. 
like the earlier dreams, but it's shot through with a sense of true evil and the powers of darkness. The world's empires this time are shown as a series of cruel beasts arising out of the ocean depths, which at that time represented everything that was chaotic, the epitome of chaos. And each beast seems to lust for ever more cruelty and chaos, and it seems to prey on its predecessor. And Daniel's nightmare grows more horrific with each of the beasts. And they're thought by some to, to represent specific kingdoms, namely Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these were the successive kingdoms of that period of history. They were arrogant, and each empire claimed to be forever, as empires do, don't they? And these, but these can, at the same time, of course, represent the worst of any empire in history. I mean, sometimes you wish that God had said to Daniel, this is Babylon, and this is Persia, and this is Greece, and this is Rome. But it doesn't work that way. And in some ways, it's a good thing, because, of course, we can see how it can represent something which is timeless. The empires of today are equally implied in these beasts. And, of course, a similar thing is happening around the world today, isn't it? Um, the forces of evil are still wanting to undermine God, and we see empires striving for supremacy, trying to devour weaker countries or peoples. Empires whose aim is self-perpetuation and ultimate dominance, we see that today. Lacking compassion for individual people. Individual people don't count. They don't care about them. Um, and whose leaders or elites have no humility or sense of proportion. We see all these things today. And the ten horns on the fourth beast are often held to be an indication of how this beast is so much more powerful than those that went before, and how its persuasive voice is heard everywhere, how dominant it is. And the small horn represents in this picture the spirit of the Antichrist, a kind of boastful, arrogant, persuasive evil in the world that is in opposition to God, but specifically is in opposition to God's Messiah or Jesus. And if this were the was where this chapter in Daniel's book ended, it would be quite grim, I think, and a reason for extreme pessimism on our part, because we'd be thinking, well, nothing ever changes, does it, in history? Nothing ever changes. And that's how many people who don't know about God and know about his son Jesus must feel when they look at the world today. Where do you find cause for true optimism and lasting hope if you look around the world today, apart from the solid, trustworthy offer of love and peace and hope that's in Jesus? But it's not where it ends, of course. That isn't all there is to Daniel chapter 7. Because with these nightmare beasts, God's sovereignty eternally is assured in this chapter. That shines through. With these nightmare beasts, we don't end there. We get God's sovereignty overriding. And that's when we're moving into the, the second of the four sections that I mentioned earlier. There are four sort of sweeping sections. And the second one sees somebody stepping in. I don't know whether they're going to get the words or not, but we're not. Oh, there's a sort of a grim no from over there. Okay, it's all right. I've got the words here. 
So, as I looked, Daniel says, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and all its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So these thrones initially stand empty as signs almost of hope, don't they? And then God, the Ancient of Days, takes his seat in one of the thrones. Now the Babylonians had a kind of dualistic view of the world in which good and evil are pitted against each other in a kind of continuing, irresolvable struggle. But here we see in the Jewish worldview of Daniel, um, we see a worldview in which good and evil aren't equal. We see a sovereign God of ultimate power, a God of wisdom, a God of holiness, all in white and of cleansing power and judgment, described later as a court, actually, in the chapter. And if you're tempted to think this is a picture of some gentle, old, doddering, godlike figure up in the clouds, look at the flames and the river of fire coming out from before him. There's certainly no dualistic worldview here. And the Ancient of Days is attended by thousands and thousands and he then destroys both this final, most powerful beast, along with the boastful horn, or the Antichrist figure. So there is hope and certainty that one day God will intervene and that there'll be justice and a reckoning when it comes to the forces of evil, because they'll be finally overthrown. The ancient days can describe, um, can describe the end of times, but also immediately after the cross and the ascension and what Jesus has done. So there's a kind of dual picture going on with this ancient of days figure. It's pointing to the distant future, but it could rightly be a description of what happens when Jesus has finished his work on the cross because it was at that point that the evil, the forces of evil in the world were destroyed but of course, they're still in their death throes, which is why we see a continuation of what they seek to do. So that was the first and the second sections. The first section, the succession of beasts, epitome of evil. The second section, the Ancient of Days appearing and sitting on his throne and a destruction of those forces of equal. But then in the third part, this chapter introduces someone called the Son of Man. The Son of Man, which as Christians we will have heard, won't we? And he turns out to be a great king. And this person was quite new to Daniel. This was new language for Daniel, completely new. And of course we want to find out more about it, don't we? We want to find about this Son of Man in this third section. Daniel then says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days 
and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All of the authority and power that is linked with or attributed to the Ancient of Days will be realized in the Son of Man. And he's one impressive figure, isn't he? He's everything that the little horn, in its boasting arrogance, isn't. Almost as though the little horn, this Antichrist figure, was some counterfeit version. And we know that there is some evil stuff going in the world, as I was saying. But the final triumph won't be with the forces represented in the beast kingdoms, all their inhumanity, but actually with this son of man figure. And this was all quite hazy for Daniel. Not just Daniel, but other Old Testament prophets. But the New Testament writers understood it much more clearly. It's made much more explicit in the New Testament because they'd either met Jesus themselves or they knew people directly who'd met Jesus. So, for example, in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, the writer argues that God is one day going to put everything under the authority of the Son of Man, and he uses Psalm 8 to make his case, and he shows that Jesus was this Son of Man. This Son of Man was Jesus himself. And we know, don't we, that when we read the Gospels, that Jesus... Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. And why did he do that? Well, he believed that this mysterious Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 referred to what he himself, Jesus, was going to do and become. And even though this was veiled for Daniel, it was from this very chapter in this book of Daniel that Jesus taught about his own return in power and his triumph over the dark forces and death. So Jesus used this chapter from Daniel to talk about himself, about what one day he would do. In fact, its vindication and its final realization of what he'd already achieved, what he'd already done, was seen, as I was saying a few moments ago, on the cross. But it would be finally realized historically when Jesus returns. Okay, so we're just going to have a quick break before I go into chapter 4. Well, I hope we're going to have a quick break. There's one more section to go in, section 4, not chapter 4. I'll be going into the final of the four sections I referred to. But before that, we're just going to have a quick break. Is it going to play? It's going to play. We're going to have a quick music video, which is about this very battle between the Son of Man and the forces of evil. Christ alone. 